Hey everyone, welcome to the Naz Church Weekly Message Podcast. Here you will listen to the preaching pastors from the Naz in Grove City, Ohio. We pray you are inspired by their teachings. Well, welcome. Man, that was great. That was like, um, it's about to snow outside and it's really cold and we haven't thawed yet. It's good to see you all here. Those of you that are watching online, good to see you in the house of the Lord today. Great stuff coming up next week. Great stuff going on um, all through the house of the Lord. And um, I know some of you are saying, uh, those of you that are watching online, you stayed home because somebody near you is sick or you've been sick. We know that's been going around a lot. And um, I know y'all are listening right now going, and you sound sick. Are we far enough away? Yes, you're far enough away. I'm not sick anymore. It's kind of lodged in my throat. So pray for me this morning as I bring God's word to you. Uh, We're going to continue our new series called Restoration or Restore. What we're going to talk about as we go through Restore is what God is doing in our lives, what God has been doing in and through us. Last week, you may remember Pastor David talked to us about the fact that we are temples. We're temples. Zerubbabel was building the temple. He gave us tons of lists of names of uh, people that you may want to name your children after uh, for baby dedication next week. You know, kind of the Christian name like Sheltiel and there was some other, Beth Rohaboam or whatever you want to name your kid. It'd be great names. Just look them up from Pastor David's sermon. But as we walk through today, what I want to talk about is the fact that not only are we individually the temples of the Holy Spirit, but that God has called us as his body to be a temple. So Peter will tell us that we're like stones that come together to make a living temple of God. And as we think about this, quite often when people think about temples, they think about Israel, they think about all that old stuff. They begin thinking about holiness and things that need to be holy and sacrifices that were made and wiping out sin and all those sorts of things. And we're gonna talk about that a bit today as it pertains to us. What does it mean to be God's holy people? The children of Israel had been in exile for a long time because of their sins, because of the way they had acted, because they had not been following the Lord. So uh, I think I touched on the verse here a few times the last few months. Um, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. But we don't read the verse before that that says, after 70 years, you know, you'll reach that point. And we go, oh, that's kind of not so very exciting. So what's exciting is when restoration begins to happen. God keeps his promises. Say that with me. God keeps his promises. Ready? One, two, three. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promise. He says he's going to do something. He will do it. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are the response to God's promise that he made Jeremiah saying, don't worry. I know the plans that I have for you. I will restore you. I will bring you a future and I hope it's just going to be 70 years. So after 70 years, God keeps his promise. Cyrus of Persia sends the children of Israel back to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild. They begin to restore. So that's exciting. I love that. That's one of the things I was excited about for this particular series until I looked at a timeline and realized from the start of when Cyrus sends Zerubbabel back, where David started preaching last week, we heard about like 18 years they kind of wasted. Then they finally got started building the temple. Well, it took another four years to finish it. Then there's about another 60 years before this guy named Ezra comes, where we are today. Then following Ezra, There's another period of time before a guy named Nehemiah comes, and then Nehemiah rebuilds the wall around the city. So from beginning to end, depending on which timeline you use, it's between 80 and 100 years. 
I want God to restore now. You get it? I've waited 70 years, so when it's time for you to restore God, do it now. Restore, right? Bring it together. How many of y'all are with me? There we go. Yeah, we're all there. We're the people that pace in front of the microwave, right? It takes too long for stuff to cook. We want it now. We want it now. I want it now. Um, God comes along and he begins to say to us, it's going to be a while. And a lot of it, Pastor David mentioned in his message last week, that time plus surrender plus effort equals results. Remember that? Time plus surrender plus effort equals results. Time, 70 years had gone by. God's ready to bring his results. The surrender part's where we kind of struggle. And if we're not surrendering, it just drags out. So while God started the process of restoration 70 years after he had promised he would, or when he promised he would, um, it takes about 100 years to finally get through that whole process. How many of y'all feel like the restoration process is not fun? There we go. Some of you are willing to raise your hands. It's not. It's not always fun. What I have found, though, is if I've got a mountain to climb, quite often some of us just want to get from here to the mountaintop, and we love the mountaintop experiences, but we don't like the work that it takes to get to the top of the mountain. Do you understand me? Yeah. So I don't care whether you run up the mountain or whether you crawl up the mountain or however long it takes you, if you stop along the way and camp out, at least acknowledge there's gonna be a mountain. Okay, can you acknowledge that with me this morning? We're gonna talk about getting to this mountaintop peak place, um, but it takes a while to get there for many of us, and it has to do with us living that out. So we're gonna jump into the book of Ezra now, and when we jump into the book of Ezra, um, it's gonna be not one of those kind of verses or one of those passages where, um, where we just get a really quick answer. In fact, we're not gonna read this story and God's gonna tell us in this story, here's what you need to do. Sometimes the Bible is prescriptive. It tells you, here's this prescription you need to take, here's the thing you need to do, here's how you need to do it, and here's how life will work out. Sometimes scripture is just descriptive. It tells you a story and you read the story and you go, why is that even in here? Have y'all done that before? Thank you, those of you that are reading through Bible in a year. Yeah, I read this passage and I'm going, okay, God, do I really care how many jewels were on the priest's thing, garment that he wore? I don't care what's that have to do with anything, right? Sometimes we read things that are just describing something and we can find meaning in them. That's kind of what today's gonna be, okay? We've got some really weird stories out of the book of Ezra, but what I want you to think through real quick is this. In the restoration process that we go through, God is faithful to operate when he says he will operate. When God says he will do something, he is faithful, he will do it. How faithfully we cooperate determines the speed of the restoration. Sometimes our idea of cooperation is, yes, God, I understand what you wanna do, really be better this way, right? Until we figure out how to cooperate with him, we're gonna keep taking a long time to get through. So. When God decides it's time, it's time. Um, I was a college pastor for a number of years. One of my favorite places to do ministry was with college students because you still get to act like a youth pastor. I mean, they're not fully grownups yet. Um, they graduated high school, they're away from home, they can do what they want, they're on their own. And so you get to do all the fun things they used to love to do in youth group, plus a little bit more, and you don't have to deal with parents. It's an awesome, awesome ministry. <laughs> Um, if they mess up, you can look at the parents and go, you raised them, they're adults now, it's your fault, right? 
um, kids come to events. We'd have, I'd have events where there'd be a couple hundred kids there, crazy stuff going on, all kinds of fun things happening. And um, I'd have some kids come up and go, this is boring. Right, when you've got teens, you can't send them home because their parents brought them or their parents gotta pick them up or they gotta know where they're going. With college students, I would say, then leave. I didn't make you come. They'd be like, seriously, you just told me to leave? I'm going, I really don't care. <laughs> they're used to their youth pastor going, oh, please don't tell your parents it wasn't fun. I didn't care. So they stayed, it was fun, it was a great place. Great place to do ministry. So we get ready to go on a spelunking trip. You know what spelunking is? It's going caving. So we would go caving about once a year. And I would always have this issue whenever we would leave. I would tell the kids, show up at nine o'clock sharp. We're gonna leave at nine. So I need you to show up before nine because we're leaving at nine. At nine, the bus pulls out. Are you listening? Be and Well, what time do we need to get there? I don't care what time you get there. Get there early enough that you can be on the bus when it pulls out at nine. Do not test me on this. Every freshman, every freshman in my college group, every year, yeah, yeah, whatever. My youth, how many of y'all had youth pastors that said that, right? We're leaving at nine. And maybe you'd pull out by 9.30 or whatever, right? I know that works. So it's so one particular trip. We're leaving. We're going spelunking. And um, got a phone call that morning from a girl who's like my little sister. She had grown up on the district I grew up on. And she goes, hey, just wanted you to know I'm going to be late. I said, well, you probably don't need to go today because we're leaving at nine. She goes, no, 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 I just wanted you to know I'm going to be late. I'm going, we're leaving at nine, be there at nine. I'm going to try to get there at nine, but I might not make it at nine. I said, okay, get there at nine. So um, we get ready. The bus is loaded. We've got about 30, I think we had 30 some college students getting ready to go into this cave, which is ludicrously stupid, but we did anyway. Um, and so we're pulling out at 9.05 because there were, every time we'd go to pull out at nine, somebody else would run up, bang on the door. And then I tell them the parable of the, the, the 10 foolish and 10 wise virgins. You can go look it up in the Bible. Um, they get on the bus. So we're pulling out at 9.05. There's this horn blaring, driving up beside the bus, pulls into the parking lot. We're already out in the street. She comes running out in the street, bangs on the door, hops in. She goes, what were you doing? I said, we were leaving but I told you I was coming. I said, I told you we were leaving at nine, but I told you I was gonna be late, but I told you we were leaving at nine. Some of you are looking at me going, you're a jerk. Where is God's grace in all of this, right? I looked at her and said, God keeps his promises and Dale keeps his promises. I told all of them we're leaving at nine. Did you hear me? I told all of them we're leaving at nine. So we're leaving at nine. I'm glad you made it. I'm glad you got on. She's like, <laughs> you know, from running, chasing the bus. Here's what I'm gonna say. as a stupid story about me not being gracious enough, but I wanna tell you, God's faithful. When God says he's gonna do it, he begins to do it. What God has promised he will do in your life, he will do. This is not just about timing, it's about everything. If God says he can live in and through you and do more than you could ever ask or imagine or think, he'll do it, despite what you can ask or imagine or think. So let's look at the book of Ezra. Um, we're gonna start at chapter eight. This is a little bit after Ezra has a vision, talks to King Artaxerxes about what's going on. That's another great name for your kids, Artaxerxes. Um, but we're gonna walk through, I'm gonna tell you, restoration can be messy, okay? So those of you that are looking at allowing God to transform your life and change it, don't think it's gonna be a nice, clean, smooth, 
work, okay? It's gonna be rough, it's gonna be tough, it'll be a little bit different. So Zerubbabel and his crew have already gone. King Cyrus of Persia tells Zerubbabel, hey, go, rebuild the temple. I'm gonna send soldiers with you. I'm gonna send people with you. It's gonna be awesome. Um, uh, Zaraxerxes comes to Ezra and says, get back. I want you to rebuild the city. But I want, what I want you to do is teach the people your laws. Teach them the laws of your God. Bring reform. I've, been, I've come to know about your God. And basically what Ezra says is, you, yeah, you, you know you're right. You better do that because our God's a strong God. Our God's a big God. Our God will protect us. He protects those who love and serve and follow him. And those who don't, he wipes them out. He's a strong and mighty God. Our God protects us. You better let us go back. You better let us go back and bring his law. It's a good thing you've learned his law, Exerces. Let us go, okay? Let us out of here. So our Exerces says, go, man, go. Y'all go back, bring reform. So Ezra brings all the people together and says, let's go back. And so they say, well, is he gonna send us any soldiers and stuff? You know, we're gonna have... Cyrus sent us all these soldiers. He goes, let's pray, let's pray. So here's what happens. He prays. There by the Hava Canal, I gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before our God. We prayed that he would give us a safe journey and protect our children and all of our goods as we traveled. For I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us and protect us from enemies going along the way. After all, I told the king, our God's hand of protection is on all who worship him but his fierce anger rages against those who abandoned him. So I couldn't ask the king for soldiers. So I looked at all our people and I said, we're gonna have to pray. So we prayed and fasted earnestly that our God would take care of us. And he heard our prayer. There are places in the Old Testament where people speak for God and say, God's gonna do this. And then they go to God and go, your name's on the line, dude, you better come through. (laughs) Have you ever done that to God? You've spoken for God. And then you go back to him and say, yeah, I kind of spoke for you. You're gonna look really bad if you don't come through. Some of you are laughing. Sounds like you've done that. This is a weird passage. It's like Ezra thought, oh, I should have consulted God about that before I said it. Have any of y'all spoken and realized you should have consulted God before you spoke? Husbands and wives. Why do you get real quiet all of a sudden? (laughs) So what happens is they get back to Israel they find out some crazy things have been going on in Judah. People have been marrying themselves off to other wives uh, from these other pagan peoples that worship other gods. And that's the very thing that got them in trouble the first time. One of the things is they began to get deluded in what they believed and what was going on and they're, they're worshiping all these other gods. They're not worshiping the one true God. So Ezra gets back and sees this going on and then he finds out even some of the people that he had taken with him had done the same thing. So he cries out, he begins to repent. And in Ezra 10, we see, when, while Ezra prayed and made his confession to God on what was going on and what needed to happen, he was weeping, lying face down on the ground in front of the temple of God. A very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, the descendant of Elam, said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful to our God, for we've married these pagan women of the land. But in spite of this, there is hope for Israel. Let us now make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives and to send them away with their children. We will follow the advice given by you and by the others who respect the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law of God. Get up, for it's your duty to tell us how to proceed in setting things straight. We're behind you, so be strong and take action. So Ezra stood up demanded that the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all the people of Israel swear 
that they would do as Shechaniah had said, and they all swore a solemn oath. Kind of interesting, interesting, huh? What do you not notice in this passage? Did you hear anywhere in that passage that God told them, hey, divorce your wives? Divorce your wives and send them back. Does Ezra say, hey, God's told us to do this? No, Ezra says, hey, let's do this thing Shechaniah is saying. So they do. They send off their wives. The book of Ezra ends this way. It's the most weird ending. It's weirder than Lost. I mean, those of you that watch Lost, it's a weird ending. The end of the book of Ezra ends this way. It says, so these men divorce their wives and send them off. Some of them had children. That's it, the end. That's the end of the book. So I finished and I'm going, okay, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one scroll, so Nehemiah picks it up, right? It explains this better. Nope, you pick up Nehemiah and it says, the word of the Lord came to Nehemiah and it's a totally different story. So I'm looking at this going, this is a weird, weird story. So they kept reading back through it and saying, okay, God, what do you want to say to us as we look at restoring ourselves? What's going on in the lives of these people? What are they doing what is it that made them want to, to leave these wives? The issue is an issue of holiness, okay? It's an issue of being God's holy people. God that created the earth, God that made things the way we know them, we wanna be on his side, right? I mean, who doesn't wanna be on the side of the creator of the universe, right? Many of you come to church because you're going, I ain't gonna be on the other side. I'm gonna follow God. I'm gonna let him do what he wants in my life. After all, he's God. What do I do with all of this? Their reasoning that they did what they did was this. We wanna be holy like God is holy. We're supposed to look like him. We're supposed to reflect him. So we need to be holy. So I'm gonna to talk to you a minute today about what it means to be holy. Uh, you may have heard the word holiness used before and you're going, what in the world? I don't want any part of that. Those people are weird. Um, let me describe for you what holiness means. The first step, the first thing that holiness can mean is this. It can mean purity. And that's what these people we're looking for, okay? Holiness is purity. Say purity. Purity. Now, I'm not talking about a purity ring, okay? Although it has some connections. What purity meant was this. We are gonna follow the rules of God and we are going to stay sinless because God cannot be around sin. So we wanna steer clear of sin. We wanna be good with all of that. And so what ends up happening is these people realize, okay, we want to be pure from sin. So we're going to, we're gonna get away from it as much as we can. We're gonna divorce these wives. If we wanna put this passage in the context of scripture, I know when I first read it, it got very frustrating for me because I read it and I was going, my goodness, they divorced their wives. I, and I had this great point that I was gonna tell you, which was when you find yourself in sin, don't commit another sin to get out of that first sin. But as I read through the law of Moses, as I read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as I studied for this, realized, you know, at that point in time, the people were allowed to divorce their wives. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, it's a real quick verse, um, verses eight to nine, Jesus says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. What Jesus is saying here, I want the point I wanted to get here is, God didn't give us the, the law of divorce for Moses. He didn't give it to him because it was what he wanted. He gave it because he knew our hearts and he knew that they were hard. And Jesus says, 
not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it was meant to be. Let me show you a different way. So what they were doing is they were living in what they knew at the time that they knew. We've had a whole lot more knowledge. Jesus has preached a whole lot more to help us understand God's word and what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live. So we're, we're now responsible for that knowledge. So how do we begin to live in that and not make these same stupid mistakes? The first one is not to focus on one thing so much that we miss the bigger picture. Many of us can focus on purity to the point that we miss that God wants to do other things in our life. Um, this is what the people did. If we look at um, the book of Haggai, last week, I think Pastor David preached out of, a little bit out of Zechariah. He's one of the major prophets around the time of Ezra and uh, all this that's going on. Ezra, another one of the major prophets, a guy named Haggai. Haggai says this, on December 18th of the second year of the King Darius's reign, the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Ask the priests this question about the law. If one of you is carrying some meat from a holy sacrifice in his robes and his robe happens to brush against some bread or stew, wine or olive oil or any other kind of food, does that food become holy? And all the priests said, no. Then Haggai asked, but if someone becomes unceremonially or ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person and then they touch any of these foods, will the food then be defiled? And the priest answers, yes. So here's the picture I want you to see. Holiness, okay, living like God wants you to live, doing the thing God wants you to do, becoming who God wants you to be is very fragile. Okay, it's very fragile. If anything unclean touches me, now I'm not holy anymore. If anything that's not good touches me, I'm not good anymore. So I can go and I can get all clean and, and get everything, make sure I'm pure and I'm holy. But if I go where things are unclean, when I touch them, they don't become clean. I become unclean. So my whole life becomes defense. You understand that? Like nothing bad can get near me. I can't get near anything bad because then it'll defile me and I'll be bad. So I can't hang out with those kind of people because I don't have the power to help them become better. They just have the power to make me worse. So I just need to stay away from them. So I stay away from bad people, stay away from bad things. I don't go near those people and I play defense my whole life. I realize defense wins games, offense wins game, defense wins championships, I think it said, but you're not gonna win unless you have some sort of offense. The high school I grew up in, in, in Miami, there were 28 public schools in Miami. And I remember my senior year of high school, um, South Dade High School, my high school, had either the number one or number two all summer long, or all season long, sorry, all season long, number one, number two defense uh, in football in all of Dade County, which is a pretty big deal. It was phenomenal. So you would think we were phenomenal. We, our record was two and eight my senior year. We had the most phenomenal defense in the county. And we had the number 28 offense out of 28. So we would lose games three to nothing, seven to three. Uh, we could not score to save our lives. I think we scored a couple touchdowns one game. It was like amazing because um, the other team stunk so bad. Um, we never won. Whenever you play defense so much that you don't focus on anything else, you become a holy huddle. You pull yourselves back in. That's what happened to the people of Israel. Everything became about keeping the bad people out, keeping the bad people away, keeping bad stuff from happening to us. We don't wanna touch them, we don't wanna be near them, we're not gonna be a part of them. 
They missed the point of, well, two other points of what holiness was. God's made promises to you and me. Do you believe God will keep them? Yes, okay. So God promises a guy named Abraham that he is going to bless all the nations of the world through him. You can find it in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you, make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's purpose. That's not about purity. That's about purpose. God had a plan for Abraham. God has a plan for you. God wants to live in you. God wants to live through you so that others will be blessed through you. Not just you will be blessed, but you will be a blessing to others. That's what God had promised Abraham. These people are children of Abraham. But these people look and go, no, 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 we gotta stay away from these people. Here's something ironic. When we get so focused on some of these purity things, we forget everything else God has done. One of the people, if you read through the book of, the book of Ezra, one of the groups of people they should stay away from are the Moabites. Moabites are bad people, okay? Stay away from Moabites. Yet if you wanna open your Bible, I'll go through it real quick. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, there's a book called Ruth. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and Chronicles, then Ezra. Ruth takes place before Ezra, okay? In the book of Ruth, what we see is a Moabite woman who begins to follow God and is faithful and marries a Jewish man. And not only is she blessed, but the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, comes from her family line. A Moabite? I thought God wanted purity. Is he talking about racial purity? Or is he talking about purity of following him? See, we can get all confused about what God's talking about here. People of Israel got all confused about what God was talking about. God was saying, I want you to be my people. Be my people, follow me, but I also have a purpose for you and that's to bless others. But sometimes we forget the blessings because we get so caught up on the purity issue. So as we walk through this, uh, we find not just in Genesis, but throughout the prophets, God continues to tell the people of Israel, I want you to be a light to the nations. I want you to go out and share my truth with them. They just don't quite get it the way they should have. God's call to send us, his people out into the world so the world will be changed was not just a New Testament thing. It's not just new with Jesus. It was always there. Jesus just brings it more to light. The third thing I want you to say is holiness is power. Say power. That was very weak way of saying power. Ready, try it again. One, two, three. Power. There we go, power. Jesus gets in trouble with the Jewish leaders because they still have a purity mindset, the Pharisees. All the rules and all the stuff that they had were these defensive rules. Don't touch anything unclean. Don't be around unclean people. Stay aside. Jesus gets in trouble because he hangs around with people that do things they shouldn't be doing. Uh, but that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. In Mark uh, chapter one, we have a story of a man with leprosy who comes to Jesus, kneels in front of him and begs, um, if you're willing, Lord, you can heal me. Now, leprosy was a horrible disease. It was worse than COVID. Um, people died from it worse than COVID. People had limbs fall off. It was just gross. And you could not 
be near a person with, with leprosy. In fact, they had to walk around if you had leprosy. Um, Pastor David's done this last week. His, one of his kids had COVID. So by the new protocol, he can wear a mask and still be here. So he would wear his mask and come in the office. But as he would walk through the halls, he would go, unclean, unclean. So everyone would stay away from him. That's what lepers literally had to do. They had to shout unclean so that people wouldn't get within a certain amount of um, distance or else they would become unclean. Jesus doesn't say to the man, be well. He's done that a ton. Tons of people, he just say, you're well. Your servant's well. They will be healed. Doesn't even touch him. This guy, he reaches out and touches the leper. Why? We don't know why but I have an inkling as to why. When the Pharisees and the others come and they get upset, their mindset was, this unclean leper now has made you unclean. So Jesus tells the guy, hey, I want you to go. Here's where it says right here. Moved with compassion, it says. Moved from his guts is the word. He reached out, touched him and said, I'm willing, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared, the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. I'll be in trouble. I touched you and I shouldn't have touched you. Instead, go to the priest, let him examine you and take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But the man went and spread the word proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, a large crowd soon surrounded Jesus and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. And can you see the Pharisees coming? Hey, you touched this dude. He was unclean. Jesus goes, prove it. And they're going, but he was unclean. Jesus goes, doesn't look like it to me. But he was. Hmm. Show me video. <laughs> you got a replay of the healing. See what's going on here? This was messing with their world. When this guy touches you or you touch him, you're supposed to become unclean. But when the Holy Spirit fills us, what God's desire is, is that his power would live through us so that when unclean, unclean things come into our presence, we don't become unclean. They are transformed and they become clean. What well, we read in Romans 12, one and two, a few months back. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. What is good and acceptable and perfect means this. I can be around sinners and they don't make me unclean. Those of you that aren't really church people, you get that, but the church people, that's blowing their minds. I can be around unclean people and not be unclean, yes. In fact, you can help transform them by being around them. You don't have to fear the things of the world because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You see, holy, being holy, being what God's called me to be, being like God doesn't just mean being pure. It doesn't just mean he's given me a purpose. It means he's given me power. The things that I can't do on my own, God can now do in and through me. So how do we see this play itself out? Some of you are going, um, this sounds a little too good to be true, Pastor Dale. You've been talking a bit, but that's, I don't have any Bible proof for that. Sure, Jesus healed this guy, but that's Jesus. I'm just a normal person. What do I do with this? So we've been talking about these people back in Ezra's time. 
that had married people that weren't believers. And so they've got to divorce them and send them away according to Ezra. I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16. It turns that all on its head. Paul says, I'll speak to the rest of you. He's been talking, Paul's been talking about marriage. It's not very encouraging. Those of you that are single, I don't encourage you to read this passage. Because uh, Paul says, you know, you really shouldn't want to get married. Don't get married. It's better not to get married. Just stay single. Be like me. Be single. That's what he, I'm not single anymore, but that's what he used to say. Um, I mean, if you're just burning with lust or love, you know, whatever, I guess go ahead because it's better to marry than to burn, but it's better not to marry. And he's going, thanks, Paul. This is really encouraging. Um, then he goes here, I'm, I'm gonna speak to the rest of you. Though I don't have a direct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who's not a believer and she's unwilling, and she's willing, sorry, to continue living with him, he must not leave her. He must not leave her. It's the opposite of what Ezra said. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to the marriage and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Some of your versions may say the unbelieving wife sanctifies or the believing wife sanctifies the unbelieving spouse and the believing husband sanctifies the unbelieving spouse. Hmm. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? What if our whole mindset was not, ooh, how do I make sure I stay pure? But was, wow, how do I let God live through me so that a dying and hurting world can be transformed? He's not only given me a purpose, but he's promised to send his Holy Spirit to give me power to be more than I ever thought or imagined or dreamed. Some of you are sitting here today and you're struggling in your walk with Christ and you're struggling because you don't understand the relationship and the love he wants with you because you're so focused on purity. Now, do not hear me say, I did not say I don't believe purity is important. Purity is a part of holiness. But if that is all that you focus on, you have totally missed the point of what God wants you to be. Why does he want us to be pure? So that we look like him? Why does he want us to look like him? so that we can live out the purpose of reflecting him to a world that is dying and hurting and they can see him. Well, how do I do that? I can't do that. You know what? You're exactly right. You can't do that. Many of you have tried doing it on your own and you've stumbled and you've fallen over and over again because you're doing it in your own power. You're not doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit that God wants to live in and through you. Realize that at the time of Ezra, the Holy Spirit didn't come and live and dwell in those people. That didn't come till the day of Pentecost. So they, all they had to look at was laws and trying to live out these laws. My struggle is I'm living with a church and with a people in a world that we have the Holy Spirit, but we're still trying to do the same thing they did, which is just live out all these laws. Purity's good. I'm not saying purity's bad. What I'm saying is if it's not accompanied by the purpose of God and the power of God, it's useless. It's worth nothing. That's what we find in the book of Ezra. So as we look at this process, 
Did God begin to do what he needed to in and through them? Sure he did. After 70 years of exile, it took another 100 years of developing and working and doing what God wanted to do in and through them. Do you realize sometimes it takes a long time for that process to work itself out? But there are also moments when people totally surrender their lives to God and let him live in and through them where unbelievable stuff happens. On the day of Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit fill the disciples. We see them get up and go out, these guys that have been scared to death, the ones that ran when Jesus was on the cross. When filled with his Holy Spirit, they go out and they begin to do the exact same things Jesus did. They touch unclean people. And instead of becoming unclean, those people become clean. They live in the power that God had called them to live in. And the world is turned on its head because of these men and women who were filled with the Holy Spirit. So as I look at you today, I know some of you have already gotten stuck on you're married to an unbelieving spouse. What do I do with this? Do what Paul says, stay and pray. Pray that God will work, that through you, they'll be sanctified, that they'll be drawn to Christ. Some of you are in, are in relationships with non-believers. You're thinking, should I marry them? I would say, no, don't yet. Don't put yourself in a tough situation. It's gonna be marriage is hard enough as it is without adding more, more uh, baggage on the truck. But what do we do, those of us who find ourselves in situations where maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe it's with friends, where we find that I'm at a spot where it's not just that I haven't been transforming those things that are around me, but I've been becoming more and more and more like the world. I've let the world more and more and more creep in and make me what God doesn't want me to be. What do I do with that? You do this. Fall on your knees and you repent just like Ezra did. Say, God, this is where we're at. And then we go a step further and we say, Father, you've given us your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your power. Cleanse me and make me what you want me to be. Help me not just to seek after your purity, but Lord, help me to seek the purpose that you have for my life that a world would be transformed because you live in and through me. And God, give me the power to make that happen, not just for me, but for a world that needs to see you. I'm gonna ask you if you would to stand with me. Gracious Father, thank you that you're a God that keeps your promises. Lord, you, you created us and said when you made us that we were very good, that we reflect your image, that we're made to look like you. God, I pray that many of us have fallen far away. We need your image restored in our lives. When we try to do it on our own, we mess up. We pile sins upon sins. We keep doing stupid things. Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand the laws that you've given us, the things, the ways you've given us to live aren't meant to be a burden. They're meant to be guides that help us understand who you are. Father, if there's someone in here right now that, Lord, they've not been living that out and they need to confess their sin. We know that you've said you are faithful and just and you will forgive us and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, as we open these altars and people can come and pray. If there's someone here today who needs to say, I've not been living in purity. 
that, Lord, they would be able to come and confess those sins to you and let you cleanse them, let, let them be forgiven. If they're watching online, help them right where they are, whether they're in their living room or kitchen table, to, to kneel down and pray and just say, Father, forgive me. Father, for those that are here that maybe they focused on that so much, they've been really good at keeping all the rules. But Lord, life has no meaning for them. They don't know why they're doing it. They don't seem to be any happier than anybody else. Life seems to be dull. In fact, it seems less fun. It seems like their non-Christian friends are even having more fun than them. They're depressed, they're frustrated. God, I pray that you'd help them to understand the purpose you have for them. That you've called us to reflect you in a world that needs to see you. That Lord, we can be the tool that you use. We can be the person you use to bring someone else to you. That lives can be saved. That people, Lord, can escape hell because of us, because of us sharing you with them. God, I pray that you'd be with those of us that are in here, Lord, that we want those things, but we're willing to admit we've been doing it all in our own power. Lord, we need power from you. So Holy Spirit, come. In these next few moments as we pray, as we sing, help us to understand that, Lord, we can't do it on our own. We can only do that through you if we wanna have the purity, the power, and the purpose. Open your eyes. Why don't you look at the screen real quick. Restoration to the image of God means that we enter into his story of purity and of power and of purpose. Say purity, purpose, power with me, ready? Purity, purpose, power. That's what God wants for you. That's what he wants you to live in. If you don't believe it, let me, I'm gonna close out with one. This is one of my favorite scriptures of all time. First Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24 says this. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. Some of your versions may say, sanctify you entirely. I think NIV says, may he sanctify you and set you apart, make you holy in every way. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. The God who is faithful and has called you He'll do this. Let me talk to you about this word. It's a weird church word. Holy, sanctify. Okay, it's the same exact word, okay? It means the same thing. This iPad, it's an iPad. How many of y'all own an iPad or some sort of tablet, okay, or a computer? Mine's holier than yours, okay? Here's why. This iPad is holy. It's been set apart for use in the church, okay? So it, it, it has sermon notes on it and things like that, okay? That's not what makes it holy. What makes it holy is... It was set apart. But if I laid it on, on the shelf and it never did anything, is it useful? It's no good. What good is an iPad sitting on a shelf? It's no good at all. It becomes holy when it's taken off the shelf and it's used. The same thing's true in your life and my life. God has called you holy. And some of you are going, I'm not holy. I can't be holy. You're holy in this regard. God has called you and set you aside and said, you're not to be like peoples of the world. I have made you holy. I have set you aside. God has set you aside for his plans and his purposes because he loves you. You're like that iPad. But I'm afraid too many of you are like the iPad that just sits on the shelf. Why does God want an iPad? 
I just really need an iPad. Why does God want a human? He wants a human because he loves you. He wants a human because he wants to live through you to see everything that he made you to be. So you look like him. So you walk like him. So you talk like him. So you're holy in the respect that you've been set aside. The question is, are you gonna become holy to let him live in and through you, through his power? He has promised he will do this. So listen to that verse again. Now I ask through the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ that your mind would be kept sound, blameless in your body, that the Lord would sanctify you entirely, that your whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of you are going, I can't do that. And Paul says, you're right. But the one who calls you is faithful, he'll do it. Will you submit to him as we sing? Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. Stay connected with us at thenaz.church.